The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Roads Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and back roads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. So glad to have you with us, everybody. Today, we are brought to you by the good folks of Vandalia, Illinois. Vandalia, V-A-N-D-A-L-I-A. That's a town that knows it has a bright future, even while remaining true to their solid Midwestern roots. The 200th anniversary of Vandalia is right around the corner from June 13 through 16, 2019. More about the bicentennial festivities a little later in the show. But for now, we want to get started with part two, as it were, of our adventures in Key West. And when I say our, I mean myself and my partner, Suzanne Mitchell, who is today's partner on the podcast and always my partner on the open road. Good to have you with us, Suzanne. And it's good to be here. We had such a great time in Key West. And one of the one of the people we talked to was the one we're going to talk to again today. When you talk about learning a lot on the road, that is never more the case when you go to Key West, Florida, than if you have the opportunity. It sure was a privilege for us to be able to meet Dr. Corey Convertito, PhD. She is a historian by training. She's also the curator of collections. And we want to bring her on and discuss the wonders of Key West, particularly under her supervision at Key West Art and Historical Society. Corey Convertito, welcome to the show for having me. Corey, I tell you, you've got the title, Curator of Collections. I said to Suzanne, I wish I had a title like that. I think that would be one of the coolest jobs around, to be able to dip more than a toe, actually, to submerse yourself in all of that history and then translate it for the many, many people who come to Key West and learn about all the treasures you have there. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I know I'm very blessed to, to have the job that I have and get to uh, you know, really learn and understand and interpret uh, a whole slew of items in, in our vast collection. You really have a big job, Dr. Corey, because when we visited with you, we found out that you're in charge of four different museums. Is that right? That is correct, yes. And what are the four museums and also just what is their main focus for each of those four? Uh, so the original museum that we have had uh, under our umbrella, it, we opened in uh, 1951, and that's the Fort East Martello Museum, and that's uh, an old Civil War fort uh, that was no longer used by the government, and they transferred it over to the county in which we reside, and the county uh, in, in turn gave it to us to turn it into a museum about the hi local history of the you know, Florida Keys and Key West. Uh, the second museum that we acquired under our umbrella is the Key West Lighthouse and the Keeper's Quarters Museum, and that really is a testament to the, the buildings itself, so it tells you about the lighthouse, um, you know, geographically why we need lighthouses here in the Florida Keys, uh, and then, you know, a little bit of a story on the life of the lighthouse keepers. Uh, the third museum is the one I'm currently sat in now. Um, it was just opened in 1999. It's the Custom House Museum. It's, it's in the old Custom House. It's we do art and history here of the Florida Keys in, in this building, um, and that's really our flagship site. And uh, the fourth one we acquired about two years ago, and it's the Tennessee Williams Museum. It's a museum that was already pre-existing and run by two wonderful and dedicated locals who wanted to see the legacy of Tennessee Williams, who was a resident of nearly 40 years in Key West, uh, live on after death. And so they set up this museum, and um, they 
felt that our stewardship was appropriate enough to put their their wonderful collection under, so we operate that as well. When I think of the Key West Art and Historical Society, my mind immediately goes to the Custom House Museum, where we had the pleasure of visiting with you in your office, Corey. And you say it opened in 1999. Now, I'm trying to put my mind back there, and I can just imagine. I've got a lot of empathy for the whole project suddenly, because it seems like you folks were ready to greet the 21st century with this wonderful museum that looks forward even while looking backward to your glorious past. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the building itself dates from 1891 is when it opened, and it was used uh, as a custom house and then uh, used by the Navy for a while. And uh, it's that derelict, and in the early 90s, our organization undertook a nine-year, uh, what was then a $9 million project to renovate the entire building to make it used uh, as a museum, so we retrofitted uh, HVAC, of course, is very important here in South Florida, so they retrofitted that, uh, made it ADA compliant, so we can welcome guests from from all over uh, and with all um, you know any physical disabilities to make sure that they're able to get into our facility. So we've got elevators um, and and you know some wonderful areas of the museum. We restored all the original woodwork, uh, the flooring. It, it was really a labor of love, and we're we're very blessed to be able to uh, have this as. Uh, the flagship museum in downtown Key West. And a beautiful building it is. I'm just curious enough to ask, Corey, how did the planners, being that this is an older building, quite a bit older, how did they plan for it to withstand hurricanes? Uh, well, uh, you know, they, the, the original planners did not necessarily plan for hurricane season. I mean, of course, they knew that they were very prevalent um, when this building uh, was originally constructed. It wasn't something that it, they paid a lot of mind to um, because this building was built to a federal standard. So you'll find this building replicated in other areas of the country, namely the Northeast. Um, and then there's a near twin of it in Aberdeen, Mississippi. Um, so, oh. you know, it, it wasn't necessarily for that, but they built them very strong and very thick because, of course, being a custom house, uh, we had a lot of confiscated goods that would always be housed here and offices and equipment. Uh, so they were they were very vigilant in wanting to protect those things from all natural elements, um, from, you know, snowstorms up north, the tornadoes uh, in the south and the Midwest, and, of course, you know, hurricanes. So they just built them. They built them so well back then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they did. As we saw for ourselves, it really is, is a gorgeous place to visit. And inside the Custom House, it's a good idea to start there if we're going to do a, a bit of a quick tour, Corey. Suzanne and I walked through, and I think our jaws dropped more than once as we toured the facility. It's multifaceted to begin with. And if you want to know, apart from going to the Hemingway House in another part of town, if you want to feel the presence of the great Ernest Hemingway and to feel the sense in which he really kind of overshadows Key West in a protecting and loving way with the spirit of all that he accomplished and all that he enjoyed in and around Key West. There are traces of that right there at the Custom House Museum. Oh, absolutely. We have a, we have a Hemingway exhibit that's on permanent display. Uh, one of the items that we have that is, I think, one of the highlights of our collection in general, and not just uh, for that exhibit, is we have Ernest Hemingway's World War One ambulance driver uniform that he was wearing when he was injured in Italy. Um, and so the uniform has holes in it from the shrapnel. 
uh, that that exploded nearby that caused his injuries. And uh, there's, uh, you know, not to be too gory, but the you know the pants are quite bloodstained. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we can understand really by looking at that uniform what Hemingway would have endured, and how that translated to his later writings. Because of course, a lot of his writings were set uh, during the war. And uh, I think that had a big influence on that. So we're, we're really very privileged to have that as one of the flagship items in, in our collection. And that's on display for visitors all the time. One of the things that I was most interested in, Corey, or that really grabbed my attention was you have a quite an extensive story of the railroad that was built from Miami to Key West because the People in the islands were cut off from the mainland except by boat and had to have everything shipped in um, by by a boat until Henry Flagler put in that railroad, which took so long. And I love that whole exhibit that's there. And I was curious and found out why that train is no longer operating. And I thought you might mention that. Uh, yeah, I mean, so, you know, Key West was disconnected. For a very long time, uh, or, you know, since its inception until the railroad opened in 1912, uh, and it ran uh, regularly uh, through 1935. It started trailing off, of course, because of the Great Depression, and people didn't have the funds to to travel as often. Uh, but the train was still running until the Labor Day of 1935, when we had um, there, there weren't categories associated with Hurricane Jet, but according to the information and the destruction. Uh, a Category 5 or very high 4 storm hit the Upper Keys, Isla Morada area, and destroyed the railroad. So they, that cut us off. Uh, the, the, because of the Depression, the railroad was already in receivership because um, it wasn't as busy and it wasn't carrying as much freight as had been before. And because of the advent of the automobile, it was determined not to rebuild the railroad and instead uh, finish the overseas highway that we still use today. And we did use it all the way from Sarasota, Florida. <laughs> what a long ride and what a beautiful ride that is on the overseas highway. And that's oh, how we yeah. saw our first sunset in Key West. We didn't make it in time to go to the landing, but we did see it on the approach. It's, it's really a thing of beauty, especially when you're, you can drive across the seven-mile bridge and hit that right at sunset, and you've got all that open water in front of you, and you're driving, and the windows are open. I mean, there's really no other feeling like it. It was an extraordinary experience. We are talking to Dr. Corey Convertito. She is the curator of collections at the Key West Art and Historical Society. There's plenty more to get into and not a whole lot of time. So we're going to try to get into several subjects because when you go to Key West, you are talking about a well-rounded adventure. Let's take a moment for the moment and then we'll come back and talk to Dr. Corey more about Key West coming up. In the meantime, in a very different part of the country, in the middle of the country, Vandalia, Illinois, in South Central Illinois, Land of Lincoln, is a town that knows it has a bright future even while remaining true to her solid Midwestern roots. The 200th anniversary of Vandalia is right around the corner from June 13 to 16, 2019. The festivities continue through the weekend with several activities planned to highlight the history of Vandalia, a movie night on the State House lawn, a parade, historical home tours, plays at the State House, live music provided by local musicians, and a Civil War reenactment in Sunman Park. And there's also, of course, the annual Grand Levy. 
Please check the City of Vandalia's website for Bicentennial updates and download the Bicentennial Celebration itinerary at VandaliaIllinois.com. And Vandalia, once again, is spelled V-A-N-D-A-L-I-A, VandaliaIllinois.com. Welcome back to Trip Talk and our conversation with Dr. Corey Convertito of the Key West Art and Historical Society. Before we leave the subject of the railroad and the hurricane, Corey, could you say a bit about Henry Flagler, this magnificent magnate, and the dream he had of connecting the mainland and Key West by railroad? Because when you go to that Custom House Museum, it is quite a saga that you follow step by step. Oh, yeah, his story is is really incredible. And to think, I mean, Henry Flagler, you know, he made his money at Standard Oil. Um, And he, his first wife became ill. And Henry Flagler had enough money to retire and live a nice, quiet life. Um, When his wife, first wife fell ill, it was suggested by a doctor for her to come to Florida and, you know, just recuperate during the winter rather than spending uh, winter in New York where the conditions are, of course, much harsher. And when Henry Flagler arrived in Florida, uh, he realized there was really no accommodation and no excellent transportation links to bring folks like him to Florida. I mean, there was about 800 miles of railroad track at the time Henry Flagler gets to Florida, which isn't much considering how large the state is. And as a second career almost, Henry Flagler launched uh, this, this program to extend railroads from uh, the north, so from Chicago, New York, uh, down into Florida, along the east coast of Florida, and every stop uh, on his railroad, he built an extravagant hotel. And everybody thought that when Henry reached Miami, that would be the end of it, because that's the natural end of the landmass for Florida, aside from us down you know, in the Florida Keys. And mm-hmm. when he got to Miami, he thought, well, we might as well make it all the way, to, to Key West, and he worked with engineers to figure out how to build a series of bridges that leapfrog from key to key uh, in order to uh, open a railroad. And, of course, uh, you know, being a businessman, uh, conveniently at the time, what motivated him a lot, not just to connect us to the mainland, uh, the opening of the Panama Canal was around the same time, so he saw that as an economic motivator, uh, aside from his series of hotels and railroads, where uh, goods can come and go through the Panama Canal and be brought to Key West, put on his train system, and taken, uh, you know, to other places in the country. I mean, it was an amazing uh, engineering feat, but to have the vision to connect uh, the, the Florida Keys to mainland Florida was something that incredible, and I don't know that anyone else would have undertaken it. No, I'm not sure. And nobody else did, apparently. And so he had that vision. It belonged to him. And the way it ended, tragically, with the hurricane, I have to say, Corey, and I've mentioned this to Suzanne a couple of times since we got back home to Sarasota, I said, you know, this is a case where I am oddly relieved that the man did not live long enough. He was aged when the railroad opened, so he would have been a centenarian anyway there. But I'm, I guess I'm glad in a way that he didn't live to see what happened to his dream. That would have, I think that could have killed somebody right then and there. Yeah, I, I think so. I think you're right about that. And there's so much to see there. Tennessee Williams, Corey mentioned Tennessee Williams. The man knew how to write a play. There's, there's breaking news for you. Extraordinary. And you know what, Corey? I didn't mind his paintings. 
there he seemed to be enamored of certain young gentlemen in the area with friends of his there and those pay i think the entire collection if i recall is right there at the custom house museum and as paintings no they're not going to rival picasso but they belong to tennessee williams and he gave them away to friends when he could yeah, absolutely. And, and being a 40-year resident, you know, we always feel like Tennessee Williams is overshadowed a lot by Hemingway just because of the, the personality. Um, but Tennessee Williams lived in Key West and worked in Key West for uh, nearly four times as long as Hemingway. And one of the ways that Tennessee Williams relaxed uh, in the afternoons was he painted. And his paintings varied in subject matter. They varied in texture, color palette. He... he visualized a lot of his characters from his plays on canvas, so it's quite a unique way to approach Tennessee Williams' written work by viewing the paintings. You get a sense of a character that you visualized in your own mind. You see Tennessee's interpretation of that same character on canvas, and you realize what a difference is or what the similarities are. You see a, a more visual representation in the mind of an artist, and some of it's better than others. Um, he had a knack for painting, uh, he'd give himself about a three-hour limit. And he would accomplish a painting from start to finish in three hours and would typically take them. He would get a dinner invitation. That would be the host gift when he would arrive at the, whoever's home for dinner that night in lieu of a bottle of wine or uh, an appetizer or uh, any other gift. This, this is what he would, would bring. So there were a lot of paintings of his around town. Hmm. What well, the next time that Gary and I go to Key West, we want to see Tennessee Williams Museum and also the Lighthouse because of the four museums that you are the uh, curator for. We managed to see two out of the four, and the first one that we saw was the Fort East Martello Museum, and we were um, quite surprised by um, the wonderful artifacts there from indigenous people. Uh, an, a sample of a raft that was taken from Cuba to the United States. There's that 90 miles between Key West and Cuba. And the various things that were there, I got on the, the top of the fort, climbed the stairs up to the, the top of that area. But one of the things that, of course, stands out is that the museum is known for a strange artifact called Robert the Doll. So I wanted you to give just a look bit history on what Robert the Doll is. Uh, well, Robert is our resident, uh, our only haunted artifact that we're aware of. Uh, Robert uh, came to us a while ago. He belonged to a local artist here that, that was, uh, the, he was part of a family that had lived here for a few generations. And uh, this person who also goes by Robert, but his middle name was Eugene, so we usually call him by the middle name, is the person Eugene. The doll is always Robert. Uh, he had this doll from when he was a child, and as he grew up into adulthood, um, became a very uh, prolific artist, well-known artist in Florida, um, he still con continued on with an attachment to this doll. Uh, you know, Eugene was married, um, you know, his wife knew that this doll existed, um, but somehow Eugene was still very attached to it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of rumors that go around uh, about the doll, about the relationship between Eugene Otto and Robert the doll. Um, but one thing that remains constant was people feel um, very eerie about Robert. Um, they, they sense bad things happening 
uh, around him. Um, there's lots of stories. And eventually Robert found his way, after the death of his owner, Eugene, uh, the doll found its way to our museum, and he's become quite a kind of popular fixture in yes. the museum. Yeah. yeah, very popular. Describe the doll physically. Uh, he's he's a he's a, and we all call him he. It's not an it. I so I we're all guilty of kind of uh, putting <laughs> personality to him. Uh, he's he's a Steiff doll. Um, he's made by the Steiff company in Germany. That's famous for uh, inventing the teddy bear for Teddy Roosevelt. Um, he's about four feet tall. He's seated in the display case, so he doesn't look that tall when you approach him in the museum. But he's he's a life-size four-year-old uh, in terms of size and stature. Uh, and he's made of cloth. He's full of this excelsior uh, wood shaving. Um, that's his stuffing and uh, a wire through his uh, body cavity to make sure that he stays um, you know, in the same um, physical structure. It, it's because of the wood shaving stuffings that allowed it not to fall apart. Isn't that what you said to us? Uh, well, yes. I mean, he's got the wire and the stuffing in him, so it helps. He's, and he's very well made. I don't know if you're familiar with the Stive Company, but they are known even today as making some of the, the most high-end um, stuffed animals and teddy bears anywhere around the world. The quality of their work is impeccable, and you can actually see that uh, in, in Robert's composition. And I think the Excelsior, the, the wiring and that particular kind of stuffing may be largely responsible for his longevity. So way to go, Robert. And you did tell me when we met, Corey, I think this is interesting to note that Robert today, never mind the age factor, Robert, the composition and the way he is presented is not as he would have looked in a store window all those years ago. That's right. So we've been in contact with some of the folks with the Steiff Company in Germany uh, trying to verify whether or not Robert was possibly created by the company, and if so, uh, why? Because normally their, their items are not life-sized. And so from the Steiff Company, we've been able to ascertain that the doll was probably made for a window display and that the timing and the, the way that he stitched, he looks similar to other dolls from a series uh, that they did that looked like clowns and court jesters. So originally they feel as though he would have had a Harlequin-type costume on, and then somehow uh, over the years that was removed and he now is a sailor. So we think that the sailor costume that Robert currently dons was actually owned by uh, Eugene Otto when he was a child. So either Gene had put him in this costume or at some point, you know, somebody found all of these belongings of uh, Eugene Otto's and, and just put it on the doll. So we're not really clear on how the transition happened from Harlequin to, to Sailor, but that's but the it, way he is. It was probably Eugene's clothing that was put on him. That, that's what, uh, that, that's a possibility. And yeah, he that, reclines. That's what we think. Right. You know, one of the things that surprised me the most is that this doll is over 100 years old. And for doll collectors, you know, that that's not so odd. But what I did really scratch my head over was that there were letters to Robert the doll from some very famous people. They're on TV, a video display. No, not that one. The the actual <laughs> written letters. Oh, you're talking about the big shot letters. Yes, Corey. Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, Robert uh, has had um, birthday greetings in the form of a letter from a U.S. president, 
Uh, I think George Bush Sr., if I remember correctly. I don't have that to hand. Uh, and then he's also been written to for his birthday um, by Jeb Bush, who was governor of Florida and was also a presidential candidate at some point. So he he's, uh, he's pretty popular, at least with the Bush family. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and many tourists, and I mean many, will write letters, me included, just this week. I kept a promise. I made a promise to Robert that I was going to write a note of gratitude, and I sent it off a few days ago. When I go there, I hope I see it on the video monitor because they do a tableau of these as kind of a, a running display. And I just congratulated him on his longevity. And I said, I hope that you have many more years to come exactly where you are, because there's a sense of place and propriety around Robert that is best experienced face to face. And if you're going to take a picture, the legend is you need to ask, be polite and ask out loud. You don't just think it. So I followed protocol. And I'm happy to tell you, Corey, that I had a wonderful visit with Robert. Well, wonderful. That's a great museum to visit. Uh, just about any place you go in Key West, it's rich with history and has something to offer the traveling public, those who make the pilgrimage to Key West, and it was certainly worth the trip. And I can tell you this much, Corey Convertito, we will be back. Hope to see you again. It might be in uh, one of the uh, establishments there, the watering holes, etc. a nice restaurant, which abound in Key West, or we'll just drop in and say hello again. But it was a fantastic trip. And Suzanne and I, living as we do in Sarasota, could make the drive again. But I think we're going to take the sail from Fort Myers three and a half hours each way and just take it easy and take in the sights next time. I think that's a nice way to do it. We're very grateful that you joined us. Corey Convertito, Ph.D., a wonderful historian of Key West and the region. She is employed by the Key West Art and Historical Society. I hope our paths cross sometime soon once again, Corey. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And we thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to American Road Trip Talk, along with Thomas and Becky Rep, co-founders of American Road Magazine. We remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com to preview the current issue of American Road Magazine. Until next week, drive safely and dream well.